Welcome back. This is our uh, final part as we close out this series called Collide. And it's been a series where we focused on different matters in our culture that we as Christians kind of collide with. And how do we respond to them? And how do we respond in ways that bring healing and, and not hurt? And so we've been taking a look at each one in order to learn about each matter, then, you know, how to, how to engage culture with that. And uh, last weekend, uh, I was out in the atrium after the service, and a woman came uh, forward and, and shared kind of her story with me. And then she asked me, okay, well, she thanked me for the message, and she said, well, what are you talking about next weekend? And I said, well, I'm talking about politics. And she said to me, well, why are you doing this to yourself? I mean, you a glutton for punishment or what? And I think it's important for us to talk about politics. How is it that we as Christians engage in a political world? What does that look like? How do we know where to stand? And, and how do we know who to vote for? And what, what's the right thing to do? I mean, it's kind of confusing, and it's getting more confusing in our culture today. So how do we do that? Well, for me, one of the reasons why I'm talking about this is, is there, there were two events that happened in my life eight years ago that happened one right after the other. And I'll tell you what, it's one of those things that I'll tell you what, it wakes you up. It woke me up. Uh, the first event, just to let you into my life, was, it was eight years ago after I spoke on a Sunday morning. This man came forward and he wanted to talk with me. He had a question he wanted to ask me. And that's normal. I have a lot of that happen after services. Uh, but it was clear that this guy did not want anyone else to hear his question. He was ashamed. He was burdened down by something. And he asked to meet with me alone that week. So he came to my office on that day, kind of looking at the floor. Uh, he, he really had a hard time bringing it about. And I thought, man, what, what did he do? I mean, this is serious for him. And he began telling me his story, how he grew up in a conservative part of, of Michigan and how he grew up in the church and how his friends grew up in the church as well. In fact, he let me know that unlike a lot of men, he had the same friends from his childhood all the way through his life. In fact, he was in his upper 50s at that point, the same three or four friends. And he said, you know, for most of our lives, we, we really got along well. He said, we viewed things in the same way. He said, but over the past couple years for me, I've come to see things a bit differently than they do. And it's caused a lot of strife, a lot of disagreements. In fact, my friends have said things to me that were just downright hurtful. He said, so I, I'm just kind of confused. He said, here's my question. Is it possible for me to be a Democrat and still be a Christian? <laughs> that was his question. And he went on to say, because his friends, they were Republicans, he said. And his friends had told him that if you're a Christian, you vote Republican. I mean, to be a Republican is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a Republican. They're one and the same. That's what his friends were telling him. And, and he was concerned that perhaps, you know, if, if he cast his vote... ...significant for him. And we worked through that. And, and as I talked to him, one of the things I wanted to let him know about was, you know, not to put down his question, but actually I, I want to encourage him to, to turn the question around. Rather than asking it the way that he did, a better way to ask the question would be this. Is it possible to be a Christian who votes this way or that way? Because for the Christian, Christ always comes first. He always comes first. And the problem is we like our labels, we like our labels. We do that in religion as well, just to kind of divert for a moment. 
There are Christians who would say, when you talk to them, and they're very proud about this and adamant about this, they would say, well, I'm a Presbyterian. You know, I'm an Episcopalian. Or I'm a Baptist. And they'll defend that. And the reality is those labels that we wear, even in our religion, can almost be like idols to us. They get in the way. For the Christian, Christ always comes first. And the same holds true in our politics. And so I talked with that man and saw him many times afterwards. He's doing just fine. But shortly after that event in my office, I was asked to speak at a local church in Lansing. It was an honor for me. And so I showed up. It was in the summertime. And they let me know that uh, they did not have air conditioning in their church. And so it's summer. It gets pretty hot uh, in Michigan, humid. And so what they did to remedy the problem was when you walked into the worship center, they would give you a hand fan, okay? Not, not the kind of hand fans you make like out of the notes for the sermon and the message. Like I, some of you, I'm sure, won't do that. But people fold them up and they kind of make themselves cool with it. No, these were actually manufactured hand fans. They were folded up and you, you'd get one when you walked in. So I want you to imagine you speaking in front of all these people, I want you to imagine you up front speaking to a room full of people, and now it's getting hot. And so one person after another unfolds their hand fan, and they start fanning themselves, which can be a bit distracting. It's not a huge problem to get over, right? Not a huge hurdle. But I want you to imagine you speaking up front, looking out at all the various people as one hand fan after another starts opening, and everyone's fanning themselves, and you happen to notice as you're speaking that on each one of those fans is the image of now President Obama. And as I walked throughout that church and saw the posters on the walls and the statements that were there, it was very clear that for them in this church, if you were any kind of Christian at all, you were a Democrat. To be a Democrat is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a Democrat. Can both... Think about this now. This is a short period of time in my life these two events happen. Can both be true? Probably not. Can one be true? I mean, or can they both be false? I mean, how does this work? We are Christians living in a political arena. How does this work? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. And uh, I'll tell you what, the journey, it's, it's going to be interesting, I think. Uh, one pastor once said, you know, don't, don't get offended. You know, I, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. You know, so uh, that's, uh, that's kind of what I'm doing here today. And so we're going to talk about this. And in order to understand... Really, how we start with all this. What's our foundation? I think we got to go back to the time of Christ. Because we read the Bible sometimes and we're not really understanding everything that's going on. And Jesus lived within a Jewish system. And there was a political system at play for the Jewish people back then. And very much like we have a three-party system in our country, Democrat, Republican, Independent, they had a three-party system as well. And so it's important for us to understand how that works And then where did Jesus fit in to the whole mix? And so the first part I want to talk about, I'm not listing it first because it's the most important. I'm just listing it first because of the one that you've heard of before. It would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees. And, you know, it's unfair to spend, you know, 60 seconds and let you know what an entire group stands for. But I'm going to boil it down to this. The two M's. They stood for the two M's. The first M would be morality. Morality. They were all about making sure that people live godly, moral lives. In fact, 
Even though there were hundreds of laws that existed in the Old Testament back then, they thought it appropriate to add just a few more. And so they were very clear about how you were to live based on the morals that they espoused. On top of that would be the second M, money. They were about, you know, kind of big business, making money. And you can see this in the Gospels because they, in the temple, think about this now, in the temple grounds, they are selling products for higher prices than they should, that you could buy them outside the temple so that they could make money and line their own pockets with the cash. So here you have the Pharisees, they're about morality, they're about money. And then you've got the second party. This would be the Sadducees, the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were not poor by any stretch of the imagination, but they were for casting the net wide. And in the mind of the Sadducee, as they looked at all the people that lived back then, it wasn't important only for them to focus on the rich or the middle class or the upper middle class. They wanted to focus as well on those who were poor, disenfranchised, the homeless. And so as a result, they're a bit more liberal in their views, not quite as focused on morality, And they were for more governmental involvement. And then you got the third party, the Essenes. The Essenes. Now, the Essenes were not for making more money, nor were they for more, you know, governmental involvement. And so as a result, the Pharisees didn't really like them. The Sadducees didn't really like them. But for the Essenes, they wanted to honor God first and foremost. And so the answer for them in terms of how they could honor God was to live separate from society. They lived out in the desert where they could honor God and not be inhibited really in any way by the people on the left and the people on the right. So those are the three political parties during that day. And which party was Jesus a part of? Any idea? Yeah, none of them. None of them. He was a part of none of these parties at all, but his disciples wanted him to be. And if he wasn't going to join one of these parties in order to kind of establish his rule and his reign, well, then they expected him as the Messiah then to embrace totalitarianism and then gain control over every aspect of public and private life. That's what they wanted him to do, his own followers. But instead, Jesus died on a cross. He chose to change this world one life at a time, not one political party at a time, and not one national government at a time, one life at a time. Fast forward 2,000 years here in America, and what have many Christians done here in America in regards to politics? Well, we see Christians over time looking for another kind of Messiah-like figure who will kind of get into government, gain a, you know, a lofty position, and then, of course, make sure that the proper, quote-unquote, Christian agenda is brought about. One pastor writes it this way. He says, I believe many Christians have unconsciously fallen into thinking moral and cultural change will come through some sort of Messiah government group. With this thesis, we have witnessed 30 years of cultural wars where the church became a pawn in political power plays by the left and the right, each side believing that the America we want will be achieved when we hold the White House, the majority in the Senate and the House, and appoint judges who think like us. But I want you to think about this. Can you really legislate morality? Can you legislate morality? No, you really can't. Because it all starts here in the heart. And that's where Jesus focused. He knew if he was going to change the landscape 
of, of any country, of any people, the landscape of the world, you had to start with a person's heart. Chuck Colson, the late Chuck Colson wrote, he says, the danger with Christian political movements per se is that they tend to make the gospel hostage to particular political agendas. You may wrap the cross in the flag and make God a prop for the state, and this is a grave danger. So, I think for us, it's important for us to gain a proper perspective on things by taking a further look at our model, Jesus Christ. Because if you remember, he began his ministry by being baptized. After he came up out of the water, he was tempted, and then he began to follow his, he began to call his first disciples. And then he began to focus on people. And he taught the masses of people that would come all about the kingdom of God, what it meant to be a true follower of his. And Jesus, he didn't care who you were. If you were poor, if you were rich, middle class, he focused on you. He loved you. He spoke to you. And he would often heal you if you needed healing. And as a result, more and more people began to follow him, which became a problem for the leaders on the left and the leaders on the right. Because they believed if they didn't somehow stop him, he would grow in such popularity that he would usurp their authority. And then Rome would come in and take them out of power. So they devised a plan to kill Jesus. And so the religious leaders, they struck a deal with one of his followers to betray him. They arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then they held a secret trial where they found him guilty. It was then that they ran into a problem because they did not have the authority to enact anything. They needed the Roman government to do this. And so they brought Jesus to a man by the name of Pilate, who then met with Christ and asked him what wrong he had done. Jesus responded by saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were... My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world. First lesson for us to learn here. Two kingdoms exist. Two kingdoms exist. One physical and one spiritual. There is an earthly physical kingdom here and there is a spiritual kingdom everywhere. Well, then Pilate continued. He asked Christ if he was a king. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And if you remember that statement, it was the statement we began this series with. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You see, Christ, from the onset here, he made it perfectly clear that his kingdom was filled with truth and power. And Pilate challenged that. He challenged Christ's authority and his power by asking this question. He says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? See, Pilate clearly held the power, at least in his own mind, right? His kingdom was physical, and as a result, he had the power to inflict physical pain, even death upon Jesus, if that's what he chose to do. And yet in the face of this threat, Jesus responded by saying, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You'd have no power over me if God didn't give it to you. See, we first learned that two kingdoms exist, one spiritual and one physical, and now there's a but. But God delegates authority over the physical kingdom to whomever he chooses. To whomever he chooses. As hard as it is for us to understand, 
Every leader in government who has ever lived, is living now, or ever will live, acquired their authority or will acquire their authority from God's choice in God's hand, even if they didn't realize it, and even if we don't get it at all. So now back to the first century. I want you to take you back now. Jesus met with Pilate, and they had that conversation. But before this, go before this, perhaps a couple years now in time, a year and a half in time, think about this now. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he was beginning to get crowds to follow him. He was beginning to have people notice him. And people were just starting to hear him teach and spreading word about how good he was. It was then that the leaders on the left and the leaders on the right sent representatives to kind of represent them, right? And they wanted them to hear Christ's teachings and then see if there was a way to use his own words against him. And so in Mark chapter 12, it tells us they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Think about this. They said this. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I don't know what you call that, but I call that flattery. Because if you've got two groups that live in opposition to you, and suddenly they both come to you, and they can't stop saying enough good things about you, you better know that something's up. They're trying to trick him. And they eventually got to their deceptive question at hand. They said, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, on the surface, they look like a noble bunch of people, don't they? I mean, not only do they want to pay every cent in taxes that they should, they want to make sure they pay the right people. But Jesus knew that they were up to something. He also knew that if he didn't answer carefully, he would tick off people on both sides of the aisle, if you will. Either he would tick off the Jews if he stated that every dollar should go to Caesar, or he would tick off Rome if he told the Jews that there was no need for Jews to pay the Roman tax. And so he took a coin and he looked at it and he asked a question, something that Jesus often did when he was put on the spot. He said, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Well, Caesar's, they replied. You see, Caesar's face had been engrafted on every coin back then, first of all, because he was the emperor, he was in charge, and secondly, and this is very important, he, in the minds of people, was God. He was God living and breathing and walking on this earth. So once Jesus heard their answer, he gave them his response. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In one simple response, Jesus basically said, give Caesar his due and give God his due. And I hope you don't miss the little lesson that he hid in there. He's saying to the people, and by the way, Caesar isn't God. Friends, we first learned two kingdoms exist, one physical and one spiritual. Then we learn that God delegates authority to whomever he chooses over that physical kingdom. And now we learn that two kingdoms exist, one physical and one spiritual, and every Christian is a citizen of both kingdoms. We're a citizen of both kingdoms. That's why he said you've got to give Caesar or the government their due and give God his due. And while it sounds nice to say that we're a citizen of both kingdoms, it raises a question, doesn't it? I mean, what happens when both kingdoms don't agree? How are you to respond? How are you to do this in in the government that we have, in a representative republic? Well, a friend of mine on the shepherding team, he wrote me a couple weeks ago. And I'll tell you what, this was just a part of his email. 
I mean, I thought it should come out of a book. It was so good. Listen to what he wrote. He said, both major political parties embody some part of the gospel message. For example, on government welfare, the Republicans favor personal responsibility and the Democrats favor helping the poor. Both are right in the right situations. The adversary has worked to create a split in the parties that has resulted in a split in how political Christians see the issues. And here's the key phrase. If we take party lines on issues, we divide the gospel. If we take party lines on issues, we divide the gospel because there is no political party that embraces the totality of the gospel. They all say, well, this portion of it, this facet of it, but nobody embraces the whole thing. The Apostle Paul was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wrote about it. He also lived in a Roman culture. And I want you to think about this now. Paul lives in this Roman culture. And I want you to think about our own. Because in the Roman society of that day, a person could worship whatever God he or she chose to worship. On top of that, in Roman society, achievement and entertainment were as esteemed as their many gods. And earlier in Paul's life, there was an emperor by the name of Claudius who saw little advantage to being monogamous, so he openly played the field. And later in Paul's life, there was an emperor by the name of Nero who married a boy who acted as though he were a woman. And later in Nero's life, he had a second marriage to a man. Gay marriage was on the rise. The culture back then embraced a mindset where everything worked. You have your truth, I have my truth. Does any of this sound familiar? And in the face of this pagan culture, a culture far worse than what we're at right now, Paul gives this advice to Christians in Rome. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Here Paul in the Greek is telling us that it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, we are all to submit to our leaders in government. And hear me, to submit does not mean to agree. It means I submit even if I don't agree. And why should we submit in these ways? Well, Paul continues to write. For there is no authority except that which God has established. He is building on what Christ said to Pilate. You'd have no authority if God didn't give this to you. Paul says, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. See, God is ultimately in control. And for whatever reasons, reasons we may never understand in this life, God has positioned every leader in order to ultimately complete and fulfill his own agenda. And in the meantime, we are to submit to them. Paul continues to write, and these are really important words. Think about these. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. The lesson he's saying is basically this. Obedience to your leaders brings blessing to your everyday life. Now, I want you to just think about this. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. But Paul, many of his letters, he's, he's writing from prison. How does that work? Why is he in prison and he's telling everyone to submit to your leaders? I mean, how did he end up there? We'll come back to that. Friends, in the midst of a world where there's a physical kingdom and a spiritual kingdom, where God delegates authority to whomever he chooses, 
and where Christians are a citizen of both kingdoms. Here's the question. What do we do when our government sets God on a shelf and openly disrespects his values? Well, we are to do exactly what the first century Christians did. And that means, friends, we must know that two kingdoms exist, one physical and one spiritual. And here's the deal. And we are to model Christ by promoting Christ's mission. We are to model Christ by promoting Christ's mission. You see, Christ gave us a mission. And what he said is, you know what? You, me, we all are to fulfill this mission no matter who is in government. No matter how chaotic this world seems to be. No matter if, the, if our culture keeps shifting all the time away from godly morals. Here's what we are to do. This is our mission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, not some things, not the things that you like or the things that you'll think they'll receive, but teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. No matter what's going on, friends, we are to do that. Live out Christ's mission. And how do we do this? Well, let's talk about four ways, four practical ways to live as Christians in this political age. We've got to live out Christ's mission and culture, which means first we need to pray. We've got to pray for our governmental leaders. We have to pray. Paul writes, I urge them, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Then he, he says, and he clarifies, even for kings and those in authority, even Nero, he's saying that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, I hear Christians, all kinds of Christians, and they're in a panic. They're in a panic because what they're seeing in our culture is just changing so rapidly. Friends, if we want to change in Washington, we got to get on our knees. And we need to pray What's your prayer life like? Do you not only pray for your meal and that you'll sleep well tonight, are you praying for our governor? Are you praying for our president? Are you praying for those members on the Supreme Court or in Congress and the Senate? Are you praying for them? We don't need to panic, friends. We need to pray. We need to pray. Secondly, we have to represent Jesus to everyone. We've got to represent Jesus to everyone. Before Jesus issued this mission statement, he gave us a clue about what it would look like. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. If you grew up in the church as a, a little child, you might remember that song, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Remember that one? And the second verse, hide it under a bushel. no. I'm going to let it shine. It comes right here from Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand where everyone can see it, right? And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I want you to hear me. Because here's the reality. When I've spoken on this kind of subject matter before over the past two and a half years since I've been here, undoubtedly there have been people who've come out after the service and have talked to me 
in incredible anger they have talked with me to let me know how wrong I was about making this statement. They said, no, Phil, you got it all wrong. We as Christians, yes, we are to gather, we're to pray, we're to break bread, even open up God's word, but we are to live over here and whatever the world does, we let them do whatever they're going to do. And then we just kind of meet and then we kind of go our separate ways. But we are not to impact this world. I've had people tell me this in anger, get in my face about this. And friends, all I want to say, and I think it's, it's a simple statement, is that Jesus Christ had not come to dry, die on a cross so that we could keep the gospel to ourselves. No, no, no. We, he says, are the light of the world. In fact, if you really stop to think about this, historically, we are beneficiaries of Christians who have done this before us. Before we ever lived, friends, there were Christians, because they were willing to shine their lights, they fed the poor here in our country. Before you and I ever were born, there were Christians, because they were willing to shine their lights, they built hospitals here in America to heal the sick. This is historically accurate. It starts with Christians, friends. Before you and I were ever born, because Christians were willing to shine their lights, orphanages were created to meet the needs of children. On top of that, because the Christians were willing to shine their lights, universities, some of our best universities here in our country, were founded and started by Christians in the name of Christ. And because Christians were willing to shine their lights, victims of earthquakes and floods were treated with dignity and respect. And the list goes on and on and on. We are to shine our lights. Are you shining? Are you shining brightly? Or because of the culture and because of the pressure, are you hiding it under a bushel? Say no. No. Not any longer because we are to represent Jesus to everyone. Thirdly, we are to vote for whomever best represents God's values. We are to vote for whomever best represents God's values. And I'll tell you what, after each service so far, I've had person after person come up to me and say, okay, I heard you say that, but can you help us on this one? Because that is not easy. It's easy to say that, but here in our politics today, how in the world would you even know? Well, I'll say this. Once we know who's actually running on the Democratic side and on the Republican side, you know what? What's going to happen is they'll make their views more overt. They'll create their stance, if you will. And I think then it's going to better enable us to pray and know, kind of discern who, who best represents God's values. But when it comes time for us to vote, I want you to think about this. Because this is a stat that's out there. Research has been done. There are 80 million evangelical Christians in our country. 80 million. Only half of them are registered to vote. 40 million. And based on the past, only half of those Christians who are registered to vote will vote. 20 million of the 80 million. Friends, when Jesus lived, when Paul lived, they lived in a government that was, you know totalitarianism. If you didn't do what the government said, you died. We live in a very different age, in a very different country. We have the right to vote. And we have the right, you know, to look at all this and cast our vote so that people would get into office that can make a difference in our country. But when we do this, and I want to encourage you to register, we got to remember that no party Democrat, Republican, Independent, or Libertarian, or otherwise, fully represents God's heart. 
fully represents the totality of the gospel. They all have their little corner of it. And everyone wants to grasp a hold of this and say, well, this is what the Bible says, or this is what the Bible says. No, no, no. We have to look at the gospel and wrap our arms around that. Pastor Tony Evans says, God is looking for his children to choose his way first. He's looking for them to say, God, I am your child before I am a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? And how do you want me to vote on these issues? Which candidates, regardless of party affiliation, will most honor you? That's the prayer we got to pray. Fourthly, and this is hardest for people to, to grasp a hold of, and I'll explain it. We've got to serve God's kingdom before man's kingdom. We've got to serve man, God's kingdom before man's kingdom. And it means basically this, and I'll explain it. We are to obey the laws established by our government unless... Unless those laws prohibit the practice of our faith or those laws exist to harm and kill people within our own country. The Apostle Peter clearly, boldly set the bar for us when he said, you know, in the face of that, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Let me give you some practical examples. Think about the country of China. You go back 20, 30, 40 years ago, and and the government was against Christianity. You couldn't live as a Christian. And yet Christians from other countries risked their lives to smuggle Bibles into that country. And eventually people came to saving faith. Eventually, churches began to emerge, secret churches, churches the government did not know about. And when they found out about these secret churches, they tried to destroy the people, kill the people in those churches. And you know what happened? As a result, more and more people came to saving faith. And this all happened because of Christians who served God first. They put God first because the Bible clearly says we are to meet, we are to gather, we are to congregate. And so they obeyed God's word first. Or think about the country of Holland, for example. I visited there about six years ago, and I went to the home of Corey Ten Boom. The Ten Booms, and you can look up their story. There was a Hollywood film in the 70s made called The Hiding Place. And it talks about the story of their family. They were Christians who lived in Holland, and Germany came in and invaded them and now controlled their country. They were in authority, and Germany stood for the extermination of the Jewish people. And the Ten Boom said, you know what? The Jewish people, they, they don't believe what we believe, but that's not so important right now. What is important is that God's Word says that we are all equally valuable. We're all made in the image of God. And so they hid Jews in their homes in order to save their lives. I stood in the very place where they had built this brick wall to hide the Jews within their home. I stood where the Jewish people once stood. And as I stood there, I stood in awe of Christians who would risk their very lives to serve God's kingdom before man's kingdom. We've got to be doing that in our own country. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't subject himself to the laws that he believed to be unbiblical at the time. And his response, of course, was a nonviolent approach that represented the humility of Christ while also displaying the authority of Christ. And our country is better for it. We must serve God before man. Friends, we all want God to bless America. But have we as a country submitted to him so that he can bless us? Because the Bible is very clear. Look at Psalm 33, verse 12. It says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
It doesn't say blessed is the nation that, that you know, recognizes that there is a God. Blessed is the nation that says, well, under God. No, no, no. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And when God becomes your Lord, it means you submit yourself to him and you operate according to his agenda, what he wants. But our country has been willing to acknowledge God without pursuing him, without submitting to him. And as a result, we are seeing chaos abound in our country. But even so, there's hope. There's hope. Because scattered throughout our country are people who know the Lord. They've heard the call of Jesus on their lives, and they seek to represent him in caring and radical ways. Scattered throughout our nation are people who are willing to shine their lights. And these people identify themselves as Christians, not as Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, or otherwise, but as Christians, because Christ always comes first. And we, like Jesus, are called to change our world one life at a time. Not one political party at a time or national government at a time, but one life at a time. And this requires sacrifice. Because Jesus the one, that's why we're here today, because we want to follow him. He said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. And that was very clear in that country and in that time what that meant. It meant this, that you're going to die. You're going to die to yourself to follow Jesus. You're going to die to any sense of of what's comfortable. You're going to die to all of these things in order to help other people live. And so as we end this series called Collide, I got one question for you. And I want you to think about this question today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, because it's paramount. Jesus has called for you to follow him. He's called for me to follow him. And here's the question. Are you prepared to take up your cross and join his movement?